Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 136. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. This week, we're sharing our inspiring conversation with Theaster Gates. For those of you who aren't already familiar with Theaster, you're in for a treat. Theaster Gates often refers to himself as a potter. And while it's true that he is, through years of training and practice, he's also an extremely talented multidisciplinary artist, urban planner, and community-focused social activist. Theaster may be most well-known for his nonprofit Rebuild Foundation. The foundation purchases abandoned buildings in the south side of Chicago, the neighborhood Theaster grew up and still resides in, and transforms them into beautiful community hubs that connect and inspire the local residents through art, creativity, and professional skill training. Gates' work extends into academia as well. He's a full professor in the Department of Visual Arts at the University of Chicago, where he's also the director of Arts and Public Life. It's in this context that he is unveiling his latest project, part of an $80 million renovation and restoration of the Edward Durrell Stone-designed Keller Hall, home to the school's Harris School of Public Policy. Theaster's role involved designing a soaring communal atrium space lined with wood from fallen ash trees and milled by local residents. Our conversation with Theaster Gates starts with his reuse of Chicago's diseased ash trees into millwork and detailing for the new University of Chicago Keller Center, and quickly veers into the topics of hand skills, black labor, neighborhood communities, and socio-cultural readings of beauty. So this new Keller Center at the University of Chicago, beautiful project. Maybe we could start out with you telling us a little bit about the brief that you received for this project. So the Keller Center was in the middle of its renovation, and um, I had just become a newly appointed uh, professor in the Harris School of Public Policy. And so the Keller Center was going to be our new home. And I believe the chair, Catherine Baker, was wondering if there was a way that my artistic practice could have a presence in the building. So the architects who were doing the restoration came and came to my studio and, and saw the mill and we kind of immediately landed on the idea that perhaps the, the mill and the wood that we were milling, the ash that we were milling, could be a good fit for the kind of anthenaeum that was, that was being developed at the Keller Center. And so that's what we did. We ended up milling probably about 6,000 linear feet, maybe more, maybe closer to 25,000 linear feet for, for the project. So I'm sorry, can you give us some background? What was the mill and why did you have a mill set up and what was the interest in the ash from the beginning? Sure. So another kind of, you know, infamous now conversation with the city of Chicago where I got a call from somebody maybe in the Department of Cultural Affairs at the city of Chicago and they said, you know, we we have all these trees and we have to cut them down because they're dying of this uh, beetle infestation of this ash borer beetle. And uh, uh, and we're wondering if you would be willing to make some art out of a couple of the trees or, you know, if you'd be willing to do something. And when I found out that it was approximately 90,000 trees that would have to be cut over time, <laughs> I just thought making a work of art maybe wasn't the best solution. Maybe something else could happen that required the same kind of creativity, but, you know, maybe a different approach. And so... Pretty quickly after that, I thought maybe I could build a mill and we could mill a tremendous amount of this this ash to be used for any number of things, including my artistic devices, but also like 
flooring, baseball bats, furniture, you know, could we gift the wood back to the city for things that would actually be useful besides mulch? Right. And so the architects who were working on the building were aware of that process and that's how they they came to you specifically for the ash or did you show them the ash? Yeah, I, I think that they, they kind of had been following the, the project, but it was really after a kind of long walk through my studio, which included a trip to the mill and just looking at raw material that we thought, you know, maybe, maybe the ash was a good, a good place to land. Wonderful. So can you just to really focus in on the project and maybe we can get some more background questions in later. How exactly is the ash deployed in the building? So the Harris School wanted to have a kind of social space, and they were able to build a recessed, I've been calling it an amphenium, but it's it's essentially a kind of domed open space where open lectures could happen and uh, live performances and just gathering could happen for lunch and and, uh, being casual, a kind of hang space. And that space went from the ground level down into what would be considered the basement. And so they were looking for a clad that could kind of unify the space and, and maybe move it from the basement ground floor up onto the stairwell, southeastern stairwell. And the ash seemed a really good material that could function as a clad. We could mill enough of it. And so, you know, with with the desire to have a kind of maybe modernist, minimalist aesthetic, the architects wanted us to just mill as much ash as we could and that that would become the clad wherever they needed a wood part. And so, you know, there were specifications for the clad material and then there were also thicker board feet that were needed for, you know, tables and and other kinds of of backing material. And we we just, yeah, we were just a milling machine, to be honest. (laughs) Could you talk a little bit about how you engaged the local community and the the process of milling this wood for the project? So, you know, this question is always kind of a, it's an interesting one because uh, in some ways I feel like the local community, like I'm a dude from the hood. Mm -hmm. And the the, the question is always like, you know, does one engage the community because they're not from a community and then they have to do some extra effort for engagement. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it's just not the way it works. You know, it's like, it's like asking, like, how do you engage your sister? Or, <laughs> like, I don't engage, you know what I mean? I don't engage my yeah. sister. We go to work. You know, yeah. we love each other. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so the engagement question, right, if, if I could just deconstruct that a little bit, it has built in it, unfortunately, the truth that good things often happen by those outside and those other, and bad things happen from those inside. And rarely do those inside have the ability to manage power enough or manage the production of goods or manage the manufacturing of resources that they would be able to galvanize themselves. So it was like, I asked my brothers to help me is the short answer. I like that description much more. <laughs> I love it. It's so active and real. Yeah. Right? And so the, the, the longer answer is that, you know, we've talked in the past about workforce training, but in fact, We're not legit workforce trainee people. We're not. We hire people who live around us, and sometimes they're good at their work, and sometimes they're bad. And we hire people who don't live around us, and sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're bad. And so it's really like, what does it mean to have a company that is 
ecologically connected to the place where it is. And I think we're just an art studio trying to do that. So do we have brothers that live in the hood? Yes. How do we get them? They roll up to my studio and they say, I need a job, right? Do we have white guys who are experts at Miller's? Yes. How do we get them? They roll up to my studio and they say, I need a job. Mm. And in this way, I don't want to separate the dude who just got out of jail from the skilled white boy who came from the middle of uh, Northern Illinois. They are both the same. They are human beings wanting to be their best selves and needing employment in order to do that. And so we're a workforce employment training program for everybody. That's amazing. So, okay. It, it's amazing. I love it. But, uh, but so I want to ask you, it sounds so extraordinarily simple, right? You just do it. But you also previously worked for the city, I believe, in a city capacity, sort of managing big projects. How do you see big entities like the city or like the building department being able to sort of work on that very on the streets level? Okay. This is actually an amazing question because mm-hmm. what is a little known secret outside of city work is that city workers and private corporate individuals move back and forth between government work and private work, government work and private work. And those who know, let's say somebody who used to run the Department of Buildings, they would leave the Department of Buildings, start to work for a private developer, and because they know all the people at the Department of Buildings, that private development company grows. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. I was a dude who worked at the Transit Authority. I had no power. But I went to all the community meetings and I became the, you know, planner for transit art. But I, I, I got to witness how big projects are born, how they're financed, how their budgets are managed. And that stuff was vital to my understanding of my own artistic practice. So there's a part of me that while I'd love to be, you know, dismissive of the, the negative bureaucracies of government, in fact, That's where I learned my job. And I'm really proud of the time that I spent at the Chicago Transit Authority because Beth White and Valerie Jarrett taught me a lot about how how business is done and how projects complete themselves. And that because I had to manage a $15 million budget from the Federal Transit Administration, it meant that when I came back to my own artistic projects, I had knowledge that very few artists have access to. If we were to turn that into a charge, it could be very interesting if government workers who spent 15 to 25 years in government work, if they were to then dedicate themselves to uh, charitable activity, not-for-profit work, neighborhood beautification, other kinds of activistic pursuits with the knowledge that they have of how um, systems work, right? And instead of the trade-up always to private industry, if there was a trade-up toward high values, then, you know, the challenges that we have with neighborhood housing services or, you know, uh, LISC, that we would get the same quality expertise that Goldman Sachs would have, but we would have it from people who believe in the mission that everybody deserves a right to equal housing, beauty, education, et cetera. As an architect, a practicing architect here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, working with a group of African-American and small youth to build a vegan bakery. And one of their charges to me was to seek out minority-owned general contractors. And Mm -hmm. what I found was, is that there weren't any. 
Yeah. Uh, not and specifically black owned businesses. One of the things that I realized is that because we have such low black home ownership in the Twin Cities, that those skills, those trades that would would manage and upkeep black families' homes are not being developed here in the Twin yeah. Cities. So yeah. you as a as a man from the south side of Chicago and you're creating this mill and you're creating these opportunities. How important is it to you to keep black dollars in black communities to grow black businesses? So if, if I can deal with the first part of your, your question, which is where are the black general contractors? You know, I think that, that a, a few things happen. One, if, if you think about the history of trade in the United States, like a long history from, from um, you know, 1893, let's say, to, Colombian Exposition or something. Now, what you'd find is that there was an influx of immigrants who came to this country with skills who were intentionally here because they wanted to find a new way of life with those skills. So you'd have generational stonemasons, generational bricklayers, generational roofers, you know, folks that were expert in cement and, and, and bindings, and then folk who had a, a great understanding of, of the way buildings are built. If you couple that alongside enslaved labor that became Jim Crow labor, that became antebellum labor, that became bad industrial labor, that became uh, disenfranchised when, when warehouses and manufacturing jobs left the city, that, that, that you had on one level a highly empowered, highly competent, highly skilled group of people for whom the systems continue to work on their behalf, including the trades. And you have another group for whom, while their labor was free, it was great. Everybody benefited except them. And when their labor was no longer free, they were no longer neat. Kind of like my trees. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so part of the thing that I, that I struggle with is, how do you come back to black people and brown people and say, hey, listen, the building trades is an exceptional area of tremendous growth and very few people are trained in it. This could be an amazing niche for you. But most of the people who I know that have skills and have a leg up and, and parents who force them to do a thing, they want to be finance people. They want to be bankers. Yeah. They don't want to be plumbers. They don't, like, it's like, you know, you either, you, either, you either are struggling or you're a Harvard grad. And the, the truth is there's been no investment in the imagined middle because there's, there's no longer a middle. And so I ask myself all the time, why would I make a table at $1,000 a table when I can make a work of art for 100 times that? And the truth is, is that I believe, one, that the art world will not last forever, <laughs> that I better know how to plumb my own toilet. <laughs> but I also believe that if the world is going to work right, that those that have a tremendous amount of excess will have to lose, and those who are at the very bottom of their station will have to gain. And that means that there are other kinds of work, which I've seen evidence in other parts of the world. Like when I went to New Delhi and, and Bombay, I saw people whose job it was to deliver lunch all over Bombay. And it was like they were able to do thousands of lunches a day 
and that that was a respectable vocation because like somebody, you know, because people were working hard and they needed to eat or the laundry or, you know what I mean? So there's, there's that or the possibility that um, we could train people in the trades and that they would have union opportunity and they would have mentorship and that that mentorship might lead them to wanting to own their own company. And when they own their own company, they would be able to compete effectively with their peers and get contracts. But the truth is, unfortunately, architecture and the systems that govern architecture are also racist systems. Yep. These are yeah. such hard things to talk about. Not not here, not on our podcast. It's easy to talk about them on our podcast. <laughs> and so I know that part of the reason that I am able to do these things is because I have access to a very wealthy and and you know supportive world, white, white and otherwise. Yeah. But I also understand that that if if there's going to be opportunity that already, even when I'm a foot out of brokenness there has to be a way that I began to share my knowledge and my experiences and my resources with others. And I would say to you guys in, in, in the Twin Cities, it means then that the bakery, before it can become a bakery, it may have to become a brick-laying school. <laughs> and that every project takes a little bit longer. And every white contractor who doesn't have um, black people on their staff and, 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 you know, because, you know, every white company will have, you know, there's, there's skilled labor from other places, but I, but I wonder what it would mean to say, I believe in equity. Therefore I'm willing to have a portion of the work that we do be about training. Excellent. Excellent. Ken, uh, did you have something that you wanted to follow up? With? Sure. I, I wanted to follow up on the, you know, so much of your work is about, I would say very loosely restoration, but in a very different sense of the word. And mm-hmm. this, the wood is the wood in this space is so so very polished. What is what is it about this particular project that connects this project to the works that you've done in the past? Yeah. Okay. I'm reading things into what you're saying, Ken. You're saying okay. a lot. <laughs> So let's say that my project actually wasn't about restoration for a moment. Let's imagine that the work that I've been doing was simply uh, an effort to demonstrate that beautiful things live everywhere, that I'm actually interested in beauty and beauty in places where we don't imagine it more than I'm interested in reclaimed wood or restoration. And that, that, that ultimately beauty for me is connected to poetry, poetry, like so that what's, what's beautiful, what's awesome about the Keller Center is that I was attempting to make poetry out of the fact that the city was about to mulch 90,000 trees mm-hmm. and that by having a slightly different kind of machine, right, just, just slightly different, you know, and, and, and a slightly different kind of skilled labor, we could instead of mulching create something like the Keller Center. It is true that the finish of the wood at the Keller Center looks fancier. But then you're starting to talk about aesthetics, Ken. Like, do I have a DIY aesthetic? Like, are we talking about, you know, uh, David Chipperfield or, or Rem Coolhouse or Mies van der Rohe, right? And 
And what I wanted for the Keller Center project was that people would not believe that these were dead trees on their way to the mulch in the same way that they wouldn't believe that the people who milled the trees were people for whom maybe haven't had the best opportunities in the world. That when you look at the wood, you think, man, this is expert wood with this high finished gloss and so hip that you imagine that it should live in a white world. But in <laughs> fact, it's from a black world. Yeah. Awesome. You know, again, I'm not a, there's no miracle. It's a mill. And it's a guy mm-hmm. named Damon. And it's a guy named Carlos. Mm-hmm. And Damon and Carlos work together to make some, some you know, board feet out of old trees. Right. And, and that the, that's, that's where the poetry is when it's like, it's like flat footed, you know, it's like street poetry, you know, <laughs> it's not, it's not prose. It's not any of this sonnet shit, you know, it's street. It's like, do you have the machine to wrestle with bark? What are you going to do with the excess sawdust? Right. I want to fire that stuff in my wood fired kiln. I want to build <laughs> a wood sauna. I want to be like the people who go ice fishing on the Great Lakes in the Twin Cities. <laughs> I want to use it all. And so it just means that someone has to grapple longer with the problem of black space in the same way that we grapple longer with the problem of white space. That's what you got 350,000 men coming home from World War II. You create a GI Bill. Right. You make sure that they can get educated. <laughs> You, you, you make sure they get a house in the suburbs. You make sure banks are ready to fund them when they get out of the army. You make sure that they have wives to come home to. You do all these things because they're an extension of you. And so how do we ensure that all people are an extension of the power that governs how systems work? When I was thinking about this question, I was, think, I was looking up the uh, first law of thermodynamics, how energy is never lost. It's just transferred from one thing to another. So when I was thinking about your wood and I was thinking about your previous work, they were always the same to me because they were in the same kind of thing, taking one thing and moving it to another. And you were just doing that. Exactly right. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Uh, thanks. Thank you all. Theaster, it's been a real honor having you on the podcast. Your your work and your words are truly inspirational. And I, I wish that, you know, architecture industry would have more people like you. You know, we really need you. Hopefully we're going to see a lot more of your work in in uh, in you. architecture. So th- thank you so much. I'm an ally. I'm an ally. <laughs> As are we. Thank you. Right on. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you so much, everybody. Uh-huh. Thank Bye-bye. You. Bye. Thank you. Well, that's our conversation with the Astor Gates. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we had talking with him. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about this podcast, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thank you, and we will talk to you next time.